legs on which to walk. Kingsley thought of his brother Robert, missing since the first morning of the Somme and long since pronounced dead. If Robert had merely lost his legs instead of being vaporized by shells, could it have been him sitting there in the gallery, hurling abuse, his face a mask of fury? The judge called for silence, but he issued no rebukes. It was clear that he sympathized with the sentiments of the crowd. This courtroom will not provide a platform for slanders and treason, Mr. Kingsley. The British government does not kill its own men. The enemy kills our soldiers to further its wicked aims, and our valiant soldiers are prepared to sacrifice themselves in order to stop it. You dishonor the memory of the fallen with your fatuous sloganeering. I assure you I had no such intention, Kingsley pressed on quickly. The point I am trying to make is that whilst I am entirely satisfied that the human souls I sent to the gallows were wicked ones, fully deserving of their early dispatch, His Majesty's government is unable to judge the moral merits of ending the life of even a single one of its victims. Inspector Kingsley, the German soldier represents the will of his government, a government whose moral merits we know only too well. We know them because they are similar to our own. Again there were roars of protest from the gallery. All Kingsley's common sense told him to be silent, and yet he could not stop himself. He wanted people to understand that he was right. Not necessarily right morally, for to his mind that was a matter of personal conscience, but right intellectually. All the arguments were irrefutably on his side. The Kaiser leads an industrialized imperial Christian nation, just as does his first cousin, His Majesty King George. It is true that we are a democracy and Germany is an oligarchy, but it is not for that reason that we fight. Indeed, our ally Russia was until recently every bit the absolute monarchy that Germany is. I can see no reason why all these most similar European nations have pronounced the death sentence upon one another's populations. Inspector Kingsley, you are aware that I am empowered under the law to exercise tolerance of pacifism if that pacifism is grounded in a genuine moral or religious abhorrence of the taking of human life? I am, sir. And yet you do not seek to claim such principles in your defense. I am not a pacifist, sir, nor do I believe that all human life is inalienably sacred. I believe that there are circumstances under which killing may be justified perhaps even on the industrial scale currently underway on the fields of Belgium and France, although it is difficult to imagine what those circumstances might be. The reason I stand before you today is that I do not think those circumstances are met by the guarantees this country made to Belgium in the London Treaty of 1839. Do you think it wrong, then, the judge inquired, that a great and mighty nation such as ours comes to the aid of a small, brave one like gallant Belgium, when that country is brutally attacked and occupied. If that is the reason for our current expedition, then I think it strange that we felt no similar obligation to the peoples of the African Congo, whom gallant Belgium has happily attacked, subdued and fiendishly brutalized in a manner which I dare say exceeds any current German excesses on the continent. You compare the fate of savages to that of Christian white men? Yes, I do. Kingsley knew he was getting nowhere, and decided that he must try to assist in bringing the proceeding to a close. I recognize there is no legal defense to my position. All I can say is, I cannot shelter behind any deeply felt moral or religious principles, 
I accept that there are men I would be prepared to kill. I accept that there are wars I would be prepared to fight. All I can tell you, sir, is that the German army does not contain those men, and this war is not one of those wars. Damn it, then! If your objections are neither moral nor religious, can you please tell me in simple terms what they are? Kingsley paused. He knew that his answer would not sit well with the judge, the gallery, or the wider public outside, but he could think of no other. Intellectual, sir. Intellectual? Thousands of brave men are dying each day, and you speak of your intellect. Yes, sir, I do. It is intellect that sets man above the beasts. It is conscience that sets man above the beasts. The two are surely connected, sir. It is intellect that informs a man what is right, and conscience that determines if he will act on that information. And your intellect tells you that you should not fight this war? Yes, sir. And my conscience forces me to respect that advice. This war is... stupid. It offends my sense of logic. It offends my sense of scale. Shortly before the supper bell on the evening before his sentencing, Kingsley was told to expect a visitor. It would be the first time he had seen his wife in almost three months. Kingsley was already seated when Agnes entered the visitor's hall. Ever since the first time he had made her blush, Kingsley's private name for Agnes had been Rose, and if a rose is beautiful when set within the beauty of a garden, how much more beautiful is it when found within the bounds of prison walls? Kingsley's whole being shook with misery as he watched his wife make her way across the long grey room with its heavy stone floor and forbidding grill. She sat down in front of Kingsley but declined to meet his gaze, preferring instead to fix her eye upon the bench. Now that you are convicted, I shall seek a divorce, she said. Kingsley did not reply. If only you had been a coward, Agnes continued, then at least I might have understood. But it was clear to Kingsley that Agnes could never understand. How could she? How could any wife understand that at a time when women of every type and class were giving up their husbands, brothers and sons to the slaughter, her husband, her handsome, famous husband, who was neither coward nor moral zealot, had refused to go? You know that I am cut off by all our friends, Agnes said. In two years' time your son will be six. What prep school do you imagine will take him? How is George? Why would you care? That is unworthy of you, Rose. Agnes. Silence fell. For a moment Agnes's manner softened very slightly. He misses you. He speaks of you constantly. You're his hero. You know that. This heartbreakingly ironic observation provoked further silence, which again was broken by Agnes. Fortunately, his age protects him from our shame, but that will not always be the case. Kingsley drew deep breaths and gripped tight the chain that linked the cuffs at his wrists to those at his ankles. Forsaking his son had been the most difficult part of this whole dreadful undertaking. I loved you, Douglas. I still love you. I don't want your love. I do not want the love of a man who brings down his family for an idea. Who would sacrifice his wife and son... Not for his heart, but for his head. She slipped the wedding ring from her finger and slid it discreetly beneath the grill that separated them. Kingsley stared down at it. Take it, Agnes said quietly. He picked up the ring and put it on his little finger. 
I still love you, Douglas, Agnes added, almost whispering there. And I always will. I think that is the hardest thing of all. Then she rose to her feet. When we are divorced, will you allow George to take his grandfather's name? My name. Yes. Thank you. Goodbye. Kingsley watched her disappear from the room, wondering if his heart would break. Logic informed him that of course it would not. The heart was no more than a muscle, a pump which distributed blood about the body. It had nothing whatsoever to do with a man's emotions. But if that was the case, why did it ache so? On the same evening that Kingsley was receiving his visitor at Brixton Prison in South London, a very different kind of reception was underway in Frith Street, just off Soho Square. Captain Alan Abercrombie, late of the London Regiment Artist Rifles, was bidding farewell to a few friends at the end of a short period of leave from the Western Front. Inspector Kingsley would certainly have heard of the Lavender Lamp Club, which was an exclusively male establishment. He would have been aware that some of the things that went on in the upstairs rooms were highly illegal, and had Kingsley been a witness to them, he would reluctantly have been forced to make an arrest. But the police never visited the club, with the exception of one or two highly placed officers who went there on a non-professional basis. For this was no low brothel, but an exclusive social club where gentlemen of status who shared certain tastes met privately behind heavily barred doors. Nobody got past Mr. Bartholomew whom he did not know personally, or who had not been personally recommended to him. At the Lavender Lamp Club, patrons were free to drop the constant, grinding pretense that they wore like a cloak in almost every other circumstance of their lives. For a happy hour or two.